Ameda Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. When you work at a startup, it can expose you to work on different areas in a short amount of time. Jessica Lacks, head of business operations and analytics at DoorDash, worked from delivering food orders to customers to leveraging data science to improve the business. We talked about what data science is and examples of how it's used at DoorDash. Jessica also explained what it involved to launch the business in other cities. This show is brought to you by SudaShirt, an online store featuring apparel designed by developers for developers. SudaShirt features subtle designs to show your love for technology. Check it out by going to sudoshirt.com. That's S-U-D-O shirt.com. Thank you. Jessica Lacks, head of analytics at DoorDash, is joining us today. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Today we're going to be talking about various topics like analytics and your time at DoorDash. But first, I want to begin with talking a little bit about what you did early in your career. You were working on Wall Street in the banking industry. Can you talk about this experience a little bit? Yeah, sure. I spent several years in investment banking at Lehman Brothers in New York City, and it was a really great training ground for learning, you know, obviously financial skills, how to navigate financial statements, but also a lot of the some my work ethic and attention to detail and some of the things that have really been useful in my career were things that I learned as an, you know, an analyst and associate in investment banking before ultimately going to business school and making the switch into the tech industry. Yes, and I was reading An interview that you did where you mentioned that, yes, after working at Lehman Brothers, you did an MBA. But at some point you say, and I'm just going to quote here, I thought that I'd be sitting in a class and just have this moment of inspiration. And I'd be like, this is it. This is my passion. This is what I want to do. And then you said that didn't actually happen. Can you just give an idea of this time when you were you know, starting an MBA? Yeah, so it was actually a really scary time because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was hoping that, as I said, you know, sit in this class and something would just hit me and I would have this passion for this, you know, for a topic that I never knew I had. And maybe I was a little naive, I don't know, maybe just really optimistic, but it didn't happen. And I would sit in class and I tried taking classes that were really outside my comfort zone, things that I, you know, wasn't as familiar with. So I didn't take that many finance classes and took classes in operations research, economics, marketing, entrepreneurship. And every class I was in, I would find things that I enjoyed and things that I didn't enjoy. And it really never, I never had that experience where I was like, I want to be a consultant and, you know, could go from there. And so ultimately I needed to figure out what I wanted to do without feeling particularly passionate about any one area. Um, and that was, it was scary. Yeah. And I think that's more common than we think, but The narrative we always hear is, oh, you're passionate about this. Look at this person. They're so passionate. But I've read something different that's saying you don't have to 
be passionate about something at the beginning. You can just do something like what you did, explore different options. And as you're doing the work, you can become passionate about something. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really great that you did that. Let's talk now about DoorDash after the MBA. I think a few years passed and then you joined DoorDash. Can you give an overview of what DoorDash is doing? Yeah, sure. So after business school, I started a company called Gift Simple, actually, that was a social gifting site. Uh, I started it in school, and that was my intro into tech. I actually didn't know very much about tech companies and startups as a banker. And it wasn't until I was at school at Wharton that was a world that I was introduced to. And so I was I had the luck to be introduced to Tony through Sequoia, who had just funded DoorDash's Series A round. And at the time, DoorDash was a only in Silicon Valley. So as a New Yorker, I hadn't ever had the opportunity to use the service or really didn't even know what it was. And so DoorDash is a last mile logistics platform connecting customers with local businesses and specifically focused on food delivery. And so when I was first introduced to Tony about four and a half years ago, DoorDash was only in you know, the Palo Alto, Mountain View area, and San Jose, and was just about to launch uh, the first market outside of the Bay Area, which was LA. And that was when I joined and actually went directly to LA to help with that initial launch. And what are some of the reasons why you got interested in, in joining DoorDash? Yeah, so for me, it was the the logistics problem that was most interesting to me. And I think, you know, you learn about all of these sort of theories in school and the traveling salesman problem is like a common problem that you attack in your economics classes in some of the operations research classes that I'd taken. And it was really interesting to be able to apply some of these more theoretical concepts to an actual business. And at DoorDash, you know, there was the added complexity that this was all happening real time. And so the traveling salesman problem is that you know you have a bunch of, for us at least, you have a bunch of orders that you need to deliver. You have a certain number of dashers. We call our drivers dashers. Uh, so you have a certain number of dashers on the road and you have a certain number of restaurant stops that need to get made. And you need to understand what are the best assignments to make, what are the optimal routes for dashers to take to minimize the the delivery times. But unlike a company, say FedEx or UPS, where you have a lot of advance notice and you can plan these routes really carefully, people order their food for immediate delivery. And so we have this on-demand component that added a lot of complexity. And so talking about that problem with the founders was really interesting to see how they were approaching it. And it was that challenge that got me most excited about DoorDash. Exactly. And like you said, the nature of the product itself that you are sending to the customer, which is in this case is food, plays an important role because if you don't get your package of clothing that you order, you can get it the next day, but getting your food the next day really is not acceptable, right? Yeah, definitely not. I don't think it's going to taste very good if you get it, you know, 15 hours after you order it. And when you joined DoorDash, there were about 20 to 30 people. And I've heard you say before that it was a do everything that was necessary kind of gig. Can you explain some of the things that you were working on then or like from what areas were those things that you were doing? Yeah, so as a general manager, you really were a jack of all trades. You were a, sort of a mini CEO of your market, if you will. So you were responsible for 
all sides of the marketplace, and that's acquiring customers. So we would wake up at six in the morning and hand out promo code cards to people that were getting off of the subway in the morning. And then we were also responsible for helping with dispatch. So at the time we were working on improving our bike algorithm. And so we did a lot of manual, we would watch how the algorithm was assigning drivers versus bikers and give feedback so that the, our, the team could improve the way that we decided which orders were bike friendly or not. So we would spend our lunch times watching the orders go through the system and uh, grading some of the assignments and giving that feedback to our engineering team. We would go out and sell restaurants. So go meet the local restaurants, restaurant owners, and talk to them about you know, what DoorDash was, the value that we were trying to bring to, to local economies and sign them up on the platform. At the time, nobody even knew who we were. So there was a lot of education and explaining the value proposition to local merchants. And then and we would also orient our dashers. So we would run dasher trainings, explain to them how to use the platform, how to sign up on the schedule, walk them through an example order to get them familiar with using the app. And of course, we would actually go out and dash, similar to what we do today. But at the time, we would be out dashing probably every night, trying to help our dashers, trying to understand areas where we could make improvements and really you know, connecting with all the different sides of our audience. So it was a very hands-on job. I think I mentioned that you know, we would take out the garbage on Saturday nights. It was just you had to do whatever was needed to keep the office running, to make DoorDash successful, to improve the business, and to learn from one launch to the other so that we could ultimately build a launch playbook. We were living the experience that would ultimately result in this launch playbook that we were able to build. So you were delivering orders also? Oh yeah, okay. still do. So someone out there might get a delivery, you know, dashed by me. Nice, that's awesome. And you also said you were talking to restaurant owners. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, we needed to understand how, you know, what were the needs of, specifically talking about my time in Boston, what were the needs of the local Boston merchants? And were those needs the same as the local merchants in LA? And were those the same as the local merchants, you know, on University Avenue in Palo Alto? So really understanding that customer segment, the merchants that we wanted to get on the platform. It was also really important to you know, walk the streets and understand which were the popular merchants. Where were the, you know, the Harvard students ordering from? Where were the MIT students ordering from? The Boston University students? Where were the, you know, the mass gen doctors ordering from? And really kind of understand you know, the different audiences, the different needs for our customers. And being on the ground in Boston you know, was a really great opportunity to do that. So it sounds like a lot of this was, at the beginning, putting yourself out there. So I'm actually wondering, were you super comfortable doing this at the beginning? Just talking to restaurants and delivering the orders and stuff? Not exactly. So okay. I tend to be a little bit more comfortable, you know, behind a computer crunching numbers, I think. But similar to my the, the approach that I took in business school, I think that you really only grow as a person when you when you challenge yourself and you step outside your comfort zone and you get comfortable with people telling you no. That was my biggest fear walking into a restaurant and talking to a general manager or an owner that they were going to say no and it's really terrible to have someone tell you no to your face. Right? It doesn't feel good. And I think getting comfortable with that, when you do it enough times and you force yourself to continually put yourself out there, you realize that they're not saying no to you. They don't even know you. It's nothing personal, right? And, and to think of it as, okay, this happened. How do I convince them that that no should be a yes? 
right? What information can I share with them? How can I approach them differently? How can I show them, you know, maybe it's over time. Maybe it's, it's not, it's a no for right now, but it'll be a yes in six months. And um, it's actually been really fun to go back and think about some of the restaurants that originally said no and to see them on our platform now, because ultimately they said yes. And, you know, maybe they said yes to someone who's a much better salesperson. That's possible, but also maybe it just wasn't right for them at the time. And we needed to prove to them that there was value. Exactly. Let's talk now about another phase of DoorDash. So I read that while you were working here, you were using a lot of spreadsheets when you were a general manager. Can you talk about the purpose of these spreadsheets just to get an idea of the kind of things you were looking at? Oh, yeah. I mean, so we had financial statements for our market. So we owned the P&L. And so what kind of revenue were we generating? What were our costs? How much were we spending on marketing? How much were we spending to acquire dashers? All of that kind of stuff. And what I spent a lot of my time doing as a general manager was actually trying to understand why things in Boston were different than things had been in L.A., Right, so for example, why was dasher efficiency in Boston different than dasher efficiency in San Jose? And dasher efficiency is how many deliveries are being done per hour. And you know, why were the growth rates between one neighborhood in Chicago, say Wicker Park, why was that different than another neighborhood in Chicago, let's say the West Loop? Why were they different? Right? What was it that, you know, about the area, about our operations were different? And so I spent a lot of time, you know, asking questions about the numbers that I saw on these spreadsheets. And during this time, you decided to teach yourself how to code. What were some of the reasons for this? Well, yeah, so when you have a lot of questions, you typically want answers. I, in particular, <laughs> want answers. I think I'm a little bit of a know-it-all, and I like to have the answers to things. And unfortunately, there wasn't anyone to answer these questions. So if I wanted answers, then I needed to answer these questions. And in order to answer these questions, you, you had to go and dig into the data. That was where all of the answers lived. So uh, I really taught myself SQL and enough Python to be able to get the data that I needed just so that I could answer these questions. And in doing that, I, I became the resident problem solver. I think I had at one point a title of Swiss Army Knife, right? Just anything that you wanted to know, I was going to figure out how to get an answer the best that I could. And that's exactly the kind of people that work well at a startup, I guess, because we're talking about doing everything that was necessary. So you really had to get over your fears and on board with new technologies and communication skills, I guess. Absolutely. And what specifically did you start learning for you to be able to answer the questions that you had? What languages? Well, so first it was SQL. We had a database that was accessible, and so I needed just to be able to pull the data. It started with actually just pulling the data into Excel and manipulating it that way, but I found that there were a lot of things that I wanted to be able to do, and Excel became somewhat unmanageable and just slow to navigate. So I ended up, I spent about two weeks, and I just like SQL all day, every day. So once I knew that, that was enough to be able to answer most questions. The challenge was that at the time, we didn't have an analytics database set up. And so the data lived in many different places. And so I needed to be able to learn enough Python to pull data from different data sources. And there were certain things that, uh, you know, a for loop is just a lot easier to handle. You just can't do that in SQL. So a for loop can be really helpful in, you know, doing some automation and running a particular function over a large set of data that you just can't do in SQL. 
people. And so I'm by no means you know, a software engineer, but I learned enough to be able to get by and to be able to answer the questions that I needed to answer. And you mentioned there wasn't really like an analytics team or set of people looking at this. Now there are. First, I want to clarify with you, what is analytics? <laughs> yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. So analytics at different companies means a lot of different things. Data science in particular can mean a number of different things. At DoorDash, analytics uh, includes three teams, a BI team, so a business intelligence team. And this team is responsible for designing, implementing like the underlying architecture, the tools and the processes that we need to be able to have a single source of truth data platform. And this data platform is what powers all of the analytics and decision-making at DoorDash. So they're responsible for building out scalable data models. Uh, we also have a machine learning team. So this team is building predictive models for use in product, for use for analytics and for financial forecasting. This is where we do a lot of our supply and demand forecasting. This is the team building our recommendations, our personalization and ranking algorithms, building models for pricing and pay algorithms, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then we have a business and product analytics team. And this is a team of data scientists that are working cross-functionally, both our product team and our operations team, as well as really all teams across the company to uncover insights and turn these insights into recommendations. And so this team's solving problems ranging from you know, customer lifetime value to marketplace efficiency. They're designing and analyzing A-B tests for the experiments that we're running for new product features uh, and quantifying the levers that we have to move key metrics. And so for us, analytics and data science at DoorDash is those three teams supporting all of the different functions at DoorDash. And like you said, these teams are looking at different problems to solve. One of them is for example, improving the experience of the customer's food arriving on time and fresh. Can you talk about some examples of variables that are relevant to look at if we are focusing on solving this problem and improving this experience? Yeah, so ultimately, there's, there's a couple things that go into the consumer experience. So we want to make sure that our customers, and in this case, our consumers, so people placing orders through the app, have a seamless experience in the app, right? So they can find what they are looking for, whether they know what restaurant they want or they don't. We want to make sure that they have that we make it easy for them to discover what it is that they want to order. And then once they've ordered, we want to make sure that we've set expectations properly. So if we are going to deliver the food in 35 minutes, then that's what we've told them. And so once the order is actually placed, right, quality is can be a factor of the restaurant. So we want to make sure that we have high quality restaurants on our platform and that we are getting our dashers to the stores in time for when the food is ready. So if your food is ready and a dasher doesn't arrive for, you know, 30 minutes, quality of the food is not going to be what it should be. And so we want to make sure that we can properly estimate when the food is going to be ready so that we can send a dasher so that they arrive exactly when the food is ready, can pick up the food when it's hot and fresh, and then deliver it as quickly as possible to the consumer. So we also want to make sure that while we want consumers to have access to a lot of restaurants and have a broad selection, we also want to make sure that the travel times that we have aren't you know, excessively long because in that travel time, right, food can, food can get cold. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, food is perishable, right? So we have a, a, you know, a clock that's ticking 
once the food's ready to make sure that it's delivered to the end consumer as quickly as possible so that they can enjoy it when it's you know, at its freshest. What is an example where data was used for a decision that was made at DoorDash? Oh, wow. When is data not used to make a decision? I mean, data is at the foundation of decision-making at DoorDash. You know, everything that we do, whether it's deciding how to prioritize initiatives that we're going to launch next year, to whether or not we roll out a product, to, you know, everything is, is, is based on data. So, you know, I think one of the things that we use data for that I think is particularly important to the analytics team is for prioritization. And so we, you know, you never have enough people, you never have enough time to be able to answer all of the questions that you want. And so you have to prioritize. It's, you know, I joke that, you know, I'm the ruthless prioritizer. I say no more than I say yes. And I think that we use data to be able to make these kinds of trade-offs and to be able to quantify different initiatives in similar terms so that we can decide what we're going to work on. So You know, for example, if we're debating between doing a consumer, you know, UX redesign, and we think that that is going to have a 2% impact on conversion, right? How do we quantify that in a similar, you know, metric as we might for working on delivery speed? So what if we have a team that says that they can decrease delivery times by two minutes? Well, how do you trade off a 2% increase in conversion with a two-minute decrease in ASAP times or delivery times, right? That's a very difficult decision to make. And if you're trying to allocate resources, it's a lot better if you can compare things apples to apples. And so we've done a lot of work on the analytics team to do these translations for all of these underlying, for all these levers that we have. So what is the impact of delivery times on retention on order frequency, on conversion, and can we translate that two-minute decrease in delivery times into a metric that we call incremental deliveries? And so that's how many more deliveries we would get from consumers if we had delivery times that were two minutes faster. And then we can take that del incremental delivery number and we can compare it to the incremental deliveries we get from a 2% increase in conversion. Right? And so now we know apples to apples, which one, you know, which initiative is more impactful. And we can choose to allocate resources or just prioritize the more impactful initiative before the other one. So is what you're describing kind of running a test of the other idea and then evaluating both of them? And by test, I mean releasing it like an A-B test or something? So we definitely do run a lot of A-B tests. In this case, if we're trying to decide if we want to do option A or option B, we don't have the ability to, to test either of them. But we do know from prior tests, from prior experiments, we can quantify that the incremental deliveries that we get from a 2% increase in conversion. And so we've done you know, a lot of tests over the years where we've increased conversion, and we know what that would do to you know, both conversion, retention rates, order frequency rates. And so using historical experiment data, we can quantify that 2% without actually having to, to do it. Now, that 2% is an estimate, right? So we, may, we have an estimate that this redesign will result in a 2% increase in conversion, and that we may not necessarily be certain of, but it's our best guess right now. And so using that, we're able to weigh these trade-offs. I see. And like you mentioned, data and analytics are a core component of DoorDash. Mm -hmm. How... Can we determine what data 
we should be gathering. Is there a process for that, like meeting with people and going over what data might be useful? Yeah, absolutely. So generally, I think if I had to make a sweeping generalization, you should collect everything that you can possibly collect and that, you know, you never have too much data. Obviously, that's a generalization and isn't true. And I think when, especially for smaller companies just getting started, the costs of storage are so small that that is true. But ultimately, for us, what we do is we talk about what are the things that we want to be measuring? What are the metrics that we care about? And what data do we need to be able to measure those metrics? So for example, if we're going to be launching a, you know, a new product. So let's go back to this redesign that we were just talking about in sort of the last conversation. So we want to redesign the consumer app. If we're going to do that, and let's say that we want to make changes to the way that we filter the restaurants on the homepage, well, we want to make sure that we're tracking the right events in our app to understand how many users saw these new filters, right? Obviously, we want to be tracking as well which bucket a consumer was in. So are they in the treatment bucket or the control bucket? So we want to make sure that we're firing the right experiment events. We also want to understand how many, you know, how many consumers not only saw those, you know, the, the filters, but actually clicked on them, what they clicked on. So did they set the filter to sort by price or did they sort by distance? What restaurants appeared when they made these changes, right? So, and all of this information would be scoped out in advance to know what are the things that we need to know about our consumers' engagement with the app and their behavior during this experiment that will help us make a decision as to whether or not this product that we're rolling out is having the intended effect. And so before we launch anything, the analytics team will sit down with our engineering team and our product team and our design team to talk about how this is all gonna work, what are the things that we need to track, make sure that, that the tracking is implemented correctly. And when we roll out this experiment, we'll also do some testing to make sure that things are firing as we expected, so that ultimately when we go back and once we have all of the data we need, so once the test has run for however long it needs to run to get to significance, we know that we have the data, it's clean, it's accurate, and we can do the experiment analysis at that time. Okay, so this approach, just to recap, is starting with establishing the metrics that could be useful, and then based on that, figuring out what data is needed to calculate this metric. Absolutely. You said that perfectly. Before we finish, I want to switch gears for a bit and talk about the Sequoia Mentorship Program where you are a mentor. Can you explain what this program consists of? Yeah, so the program is called Ascent, and it's sponsored by uh, Sequoia and Everwise. So it's a joint program between Sequoia and Everwise for technical women, so women who are engineers, product managers, data scientists. And so I'm a mentor in this program. This is the second time I've done this. And I'm assigned a mentee. Both actually have been uh, data scientists or, or data analysts. And the needs of the mentees actually have been very different. So for, you know, in the, the first go around, it was my mentee was looking to switch jobs and wanted advice for, you know, what are the questions that she should be asking of, an, of a potential new employer and ultimately getting her comfortable with this, the decision to leave her current role and find a new role. And my current mentee is a little bit more focused on building a career and growing in that career and creating goals for herself that she can achieve to step outside of her comfort zone and, you know, become more of a leader in her company. Exactly. Which is some of the learnings that you've 
had, right? We were talking about earlier how you were not super comfortable just going to talk to people at restaurants and delivering food. Absolutely. What are some of the things you've learned through your mentoring experiences? Do you notice patterns? I mean, I think I notice a lot of things in my mentees that I myself have experienced. And hopefully I can take, you know, some of the perspective that I now have, you know, I can share with them. And so in particular, there's a lot of self-doubt. And I think that that self-doubt is, you know, the thing that I tend to do is just tell them that it's okay, right? It's okay to doubt yourself. It's okay to, to not know everything. That's how everybody feels. And that that's not some, it in no way means that they're not smart enough, not good enough, not, you know, insert any word you want enough and that this is normal. And I think that Hopefully, by hearing that from me and hearing that from others as well, I would hope that you know you internalize it and you realize that it's okay to not always feel confident and to not always have the answer. And that doesn't mean that you're less than. It's just a moment in time, and you you know you look in the mirror, you tell yourself you're wonderful, and you and you go on with your day. And that's how you get better. And the more you do things, the more times you feel uncomfortable. All of a sudden, one day you wake up and you're not uncomfortable anymore, right? So maybe there's a meeting where you have to present and you're nervous. And every time you present, you're nervous. And then one day you turn around and you're like, I'm not nervous anymore. I feel like I've got this. And so kind of learning to embrace that discomfort, learning to step outside your comfort zone and be okay with that is really important. Exactly. And I totally agree with that. What helped me a lot was hearing it from very senior engineers that I got the opportunity to work with. They're like, that feeling never goes away. And if you want to stay in the tech industry, you're going to constantly be feeling that way. But like you said, keeping an open mindset and embracing learning and growing and feeling uncomfortable and getting things done is one of the important things. Absolutely. And it's important to recognize that everyone feels like that, right? You only know how you feel and you have all the details on how you feel. You can't see how other people feel and you can't feel the feelings they're feeling. But if you know that they feel the same way, I think it really does help to give yourself a little bit of comfort and confidence in the moment. Well, Jessica, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, it's been a blast. Thanks for having me.